Uh, hello and welcome to Say That Again Slowly, the Cambridge Festival podcast where students interview the experts who have contributed to the festival. We try to pair up students and researchers from very different disciplines to bring things back to basics. There are no stupid questions here. This year's theme is power in all its forms, from nuclear energy to medieval saints, from the history of money to the biology of extraordinary animals. I'm Ella O'Loughlin and I'm a second year undergraduate studying Arabic and French, and today I'm interviewing Rosalind Love, who will be giving a talk entitled Lady Have Mercy, The Violent Power of Early England's Female Saints. Hi, Rosalind. Hi, Ella. Um, So would you like to tell us a bit more about what you're going to be talking about on Saturday? Yeah, well, um, what I work on is... is, um, Latin written in England, uh, uh, sort of up to the time of the Norman Conquest and just a little bit after. And in particular, I work on um, stuff written down about the saints of England. Um, And I I suppose everybody knows about some of the saints of England, like St Alban and St Cuthbert, but there were were many more um, sort of patron saints of local churches who all had stories attached to them because people really cared about them. Um, And... I suppose, in a way, the, the, what we call the cult of saints is a bit like celebrity cult now. So people people kind of adored these individuals in their lives, and uh, and then after they died, they revered them. The big difference is that um, saints after death were believed to be able to kind of harness divine power on behalf of the of the people who who kind of venerated them. And sometimes that was power that could work for good to do healings, but sometimes it could also uh, be punishing power. And what I've worked on particularly is texts about female saints. And of course, in the Middle Ages, women, I mean, we know about them, we know about their lives, but we have this kind of image of them as as people who don't, don't have real power. They can't they can't mostly, except with some remarkable exceptions, rule. They can't be priests. They can't be bishops. They're, you know, they're either sitting at home embroidering, um, supporting their 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 kingly husbands, or or their or their nuns shut away. Although early England had these incredibly powerful abbesses. But what's what's really interesting to me is that when you look at the text about uh, the female saints who were patronesses, those institutions wanted to project them as as extraordinarily powerful posthumously. So it's a kind of posthumous projection back to show them as, as women who did wield power and and after death could could work some pretty scary miracles, in fact. How did they become saints? What who decided that they were going to be a, a saint if it was something that well, happened? Well, uh, I mean, that's an interest that's an interesting process in, in, at this time in England because um, you might have heard of uh, this idea called papal canonization, so that popes deciding to make somebody a saint. That only started in the 12th century, and in fact, it's a process that still goes on now, amazingly. Um, but before that, really, it was kind of a local recognition. Somebody who just was recognised as as remarkable, holy, um, and th- the process that made them into a saint was kind of a mixture of people flocking. Uh, to their tombs, but also there was a thing that was done very regularly that that somebody might have an ordinary grave, but when it was realised that they were sort of miracle working, they they dig them up and put them into a more prominent tomb, so people could kind of um, 
come and visit it. And in fact, you know, there's famous cases of, of, of tombs that are raised up with kind of holes underneath so people could get right in under. For example, at Canterbury, there's there's lots of uh, um, pictures in the, in the stained glass at Canterbury of people actually getting in underneath the tomb of Thomas Beckett so they could be really close to the bones of the saint and, and get their healing. Uh, so that's that's how you made a saint effectively. So what kind of thing did they have to do in their lifetime to have that kind of reverence? <laughs> well, uh, I, I mean, it, it, it was kind of easy for men. I mean, I, that's that's a sort of generalising thing to say. <laughs> they had to be holy. They were they were mostly either monks or or holy bishops or sometimes a combination of both things who, you know, were prayerful and uh, preached powerfully or something. Mostly for the women, nearly all of the cases that we have, they were they were abbesses of of monasteries, and the big deal was that the really the most the most loved of the female saints had stayed virginal, and so they'd staved off the world's pressures. So, for example, the, the big patron saint of of Ely, Ethel Ethel Thrith or Ethel Dreda, as she's sometimes known, she got through two marriages that she was kind of given into, you know, for political dynastic reasons. She got through them both and stayed virginal. In other words, she didn't consummate those two marriages, and eventually, she, so she wanted to give herself to God instead. And eventually she got away from the second marriage and established the, the, the monastery at Ely. And for some reason, virginity was this big deal at this time. Uh, and it's it's a kind of a, becomes a kind of stock narrative that women have to resist the pressures of the world, you know, whether it's her family or, you know, lustful suitors and it becomes like a kind of story that is that is told again and again and I suspect it's a story that sometimes is imposed on the narratives of women's lives to give them this kind of um tension point so to speak would it have been in the back of their mind that they could be canonized by doing it or would it have been something <laughs> they would have that's a very good question I, I I think that because because we have texts that are oftentimes written quite a long time after the lives of these women, it's very difficult to get... I mean, what they tell us most about is the people who wrote about them and venerated them. They don't tell us much about the mindset. But, I, but I'm sure the women who chose the path of virginity knew that it, it was giving them some specialness, some inner strength. But whether they thought that it was going to make them a saint, it's, it's a very good question. I mean, I, I think what, what they thought they were doing was vowing themselves to what they regarded as their heavenly bridegroom. And that's also a very interesting theme, is that it's like another kind of marriage, but one to this um, extraordinary heavenly spouse. So the people who who wrote about the... Um, these saints they're called hagiographers that absolutely that yes absolutely um, so who gave them like the authority on the woman's life would they have been someone who knew her or was it just somebody who was able to write well the, i think it was almost like a profession it certainly in in a lot of the texts that i'm most interested in that were written in the 11th century were written by one individual who had just made it the thing that he did and he and it, and it looks like he probably went around the monasteries of England. And uh, I mean, he was a monk 
and he and it was like the he'd he'd be given bed and board and he'd write up a, a hagiography for them because he knew how to do it and he did it extremely well and i suspect that his reputation kind of got around and maybe he took with him samples of of what he'd done before and he'd he'd and he'd listen to the local stories and i think what what happens is that people well, it's the same as celebrity cult. People remember the, their favourite stories about all oh, the time that I met Elvis or the, you know, the time that I met Princess Diane. Pe- I suspect people in the locality stored up their stories, and then he'd come in with with the conventions of the genre and combine the local stories with what he knows that you should be saying about a saint. And that's the thing about hagiography. It's very it's very it's 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 kind of stuffed with tropes and commonplaces that every saint has got to be doing certain things and he knew how to combine those two things fantastic local stories about about the people of, of the place and a bit of a sense of what the place is like and then the convention as well mm. So did he make up a lot of the stories <laughs> well, added in that's yeah I mean I I, I would hate to I would hate to say that it was all made up, but I think he what he was very good at is embellishing maybe a a, um, a a genuine story to make it to give it the right kind of colour and vividness. It's you know, I suspect, I, I'm sure he did make things up because that was I think that was part of the genre. I mean, there are famous examples of 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 hagiographies that are written about one saint that then just have the names changed to make them be about another saint. So it is a kind of cheating genre <laughs> in that sense. And it and and it almost sort of self-consciously so. So you and I could sit and, and make up a hagiography of your best friend and it would look completely convincing because all we'd need to do was use all the commonplaces. And it was thought to be sort of okay I mean to us it feels like plagiarism doesn't it but it was it was thought to be sort of okay because we're all limbs of the one body so you know theologically it could be deemed so I think he did make up stories um there's there's a saint that he wrote about called Mildthrith who um was was venerated at, at a monastery in Canterbury um and she'd been an abbess in in Kent in the 8th century probably reasonably conventional and there's an early story that her mother sent her to France to study but in the hands of our hagiographer when she goes to France um, the abbess there tries to force her into a marriage with some young relative and when Mildred says no I will not do this the abbess apparently shoves her into a furnace out of which she emerges completely unharmed. And then the abbess rips out her hair and, and Mildred puts the hair in a, in, a, in a manuscript that she's written and sends it home to England as a kind of SOS. And then she escapes. Now that, that sounds like a bunch of, of tall stories, doesn't it? But that's what they wanted to, to believe about the, the crisis that she'd had in her life. And that was a, that's precisely a story about somebody who's being forced to preserve their virginity and and push away the temptation of the world. Mm. So who were the stories written for? Who read them? Well, most of what I'm looking at is written in Latin and that instantly, as you can imagine, limits who can access it. Uh, But I think they were written oftentimes just for the monastery that cared about the saint 
Um, the stories that I've just mentioned about St Mildthrith uh, uh, at Canterbury, she she lay in a monastery called St Augustine's, and that was a that was a normal male community, but and, and they were named St Augustine's because they had the body of St Augustine, who was the the guy that was sent to convert the English. He was the first Archbishop of Canterbury, so they had a really big, powerful patron saint. And yet they nicked the bones of Mildthrith from where she'd rested and they really cared about her. And I almost feel like they cared about her almost more than their big namesake because she'd been this amazing, tough um, girl who'd preserved her virginity. And the, the, the story of her, her refusing this marriage when she's abroad, it's, it's like a, it's a narrative of the resistance against authority. And I can't help feeling that they like that. Because, I mean, it, when you're in a monastery, what, what you have to vow is obedience to the abbot. And that's fine if the abbot is just. But if you have an unjust abbot, then you can easily see how you might really want to have a figure that you can connect with who resisted unjust authority. So mm. it's sort of like a kind of streak of rebellion almost that they that they liked her because she had withstood somebody who tried to impose something on 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 her that was not what she wanted. And yeah, so they want and they wanted to believe in somebody who would work work powerful miracles on their behalf. Mm. Yeah. So what kind of miracles were there were involved in these stories? Have you got any favourites? <laughs> There's a story that um, bell ringers are ringing the bells at St Augustine's and it, um, one of the bell ringers, he's absolutely exhausted from his labours. So he goes into the chapel where Mildred is resting, ostensibly to pray, but he falls asleep because he's exhausted from ringing the bells. And as he sleeps, he sees a sort of dream, sees a beautiful girl coming towards him with this menacing face. And she lifts up her hand and she goes swap and she slaps him clean across the face with a scalding palm, as it says in the, in, in the, in the text. Um, and she says, wake up. What are you doing sleeping here? And he's then he's fully awake. So the story goes and he then sees her. So it's a ghost story. really. He sees her then walk back and climb down into her tomb. And he's so terrified. He runs screaming through the monastery um, <laughs> that he's been slapped really hard by this girl. And it's it's because she's admonishing him for disrespect. And it's just a ghost story, really, isn't it? Um, and it's it's not quite what we would call a miracle, but but still it's. It's sort of the miraculous power to come up out of your grave and and give somebody a good slapping <laughs> for disrespecting you, basically, in a sort of unwomanly way. Um, uh, if you see what I mean, I don't think uh, that wouldn't have been the behaviour expected of abbesses normally. <laughs> Is there a lot of kind of unwomanly behaviour among the saints? <laughs> um, Yes, and that's that's what really interests me. So there's so there's another story like that about Mildred, and uh, I mean the title of my of my talk, "Lady Have Mercy." Uh, "Lady Have Mercy" is a is a quote from a story uh, that's told about um, Ethelreda of Ely that um, 
there's a there's a kind of wicked henchman of the sheriff of Cambridge in the 11th century who's taxing Ely sort of unfairly and he tries to take the, even the abbot of Ely he tries to take him to court for not paying his taxes and the night before the court um this wicked henchman who's called Gervais, he wakes his whole household screaming out, lady have mercy, lady have mercy. And he says that Ethelthrith has come up, up out of her tomb and with her pastoral staff, she stabbed him right in the heart with this pastoral staff, which is meant to be an emblem of, of you know, pastoral care. Uh, and he says, she, she stabbed me and she's saying to me, what are you doing hounding my people? Um, you're going to be the, the kind of example to other people not to do this. And then he says, she's going to do it again and I'm going to die. And her sisters are doing it as well because Ethelreda was buried with two of her sisters. And she does it again like this. And then he dies. <laughs> <laughs> and it's not... To stab somebody with your with your staff of office, which is your pastoral staff, like a shepherding staff, it's not it's not really, you know, what you'd expect of an abbess. But it's because he's been harassing her people, so she mm. she has the power to come out up out of the grave and and do that. And it's obviously how Ely wanted to remember their patroness as somebody who, if necessary, could do that. And that's what I find kind of interesting, really. Mm. It seems surprising that there's like ghosts featured in these stories, because surely if it's they're Christian saints, the ghosts aren't supposed to be part of the belief system. Yeah, I mean, I, I use the word ghost, but I think there's a very strong belief in the thinness between this world and the next, that people, mm. but people could kind of appear up out of the grave. I mean, that, that, I mean, there there are quite a lot of as it were ghost stories from the middle ages there was a because they had a they had a strong sense of of the supernatural um and i don't think it's contrary to to what they believed that it was possible for for somebody to come from the other world or the beyond back into this world because um it was, you know, in the Bible, there's stories of angels appearing. And I think probably, you, you, you know, it, it's not much too big of a step to think that saints could do that as well. If you if you if that's how you wanted to think of them, if you see what I mean. Mm. Were they seen as kind of like being like angels? They don't, their behaviour doesn't seem very unjust. <laughs> <laughs> no, no. no. Uh, well, I, I, I think they probably were not quite as high in the hierarchy as angels, but... But then there's an idea, isn't there, of, a, of an avenging, avenging angel? I mean, even in the Bible, the, the angel drives out Adam and Eve from the for garden. So it, I think, I think it's not as quite as shocking as we might feel. I mean, it, the Bible, if you search hard enough, there's plenty of. Now in the, in the in the Psalms, sometimes the the voice who's speaking in the Psalms says, "Smite my enemies," asking God to do that. So you know we have this kind of idea of 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 Christianity as as peaceable peacemaking, but the Bible also has a kind of sense of righteous anger as well, um, mm. which some people find hard hard to swallow. But it, it but it is there, and the Middle Ages firmly inhabited that full range of of emotion. I think. Mm. Were the kind of stories of the female saints very different from the stories we had at the time of male saints? Um, 
Well, only only in the sense that mostly male saints didn't have this kind of crisis of, of uh, over their virginity. They weren't sort of being forced into marriages. That was definitely a kind of trope that that was played out in the lives of female saints. But in terms of of miracles afterlife, I think that the kind of portfolio is is pretty much the same for male saints as female saints and that's I suppose in this sense what, what's interesting is that whereas in life women couldn't be they couldn't be bishops they couldn't be priests mostly they weren't rulers and I don't think anybody would imagine that women could take up take up arms but but in but in in the afterlife posthumously there's sort of like a more of a a leveling out if you see what i mean uh, i mean i haven't uh, i haven't gone searching for for equivalent stories of of male saints coming and slapping people or uh, but i but i'm pretty sure they're there but it's just that that that, that what's interesting is to see that they're accorded to to women as well and that, that that's how women were remembered that's a kind of image of holy womanhood that institutions were comfortable with 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 telling basically and were they did they make up a big proportion of the saints female saints um no that I, I couldn't give you any any figures but but they're far far fewer and what's interesting about england is that when they first start writing about the saints there's hardly any women that are recorded ethel is one of the few that gets recorded um and it's only in the 11th century we suddenly see lots of women being written about who had lived long before who about whom there seems to be no record so so they have a small proportion of women mm. so was and it I, generally you know, I, I, it's not surprising they couldn't be priests they couldn't be mm. bishops there's only so many roles that they could they could have that would allow them to get to that status i guess mm. so i assume it would have been a higher class woman who oh yeah been... oh yeah oh yeah 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 absolutely absolutely Yes, we, uh, this just doesn't tell us anything about ordinary, ordinary low-class women, that's for sure. <laughs> so the portrayal of saints then, is it very different from how saints now are perceived? <laughs> well, it, the bar is set much higher now to be, to be made a saint. You, I think you have to have two provable miracles, but you also have to have virtue in your life. I mean, I, I don't know, I'm thinking of someone like Mother Teresa... I think in a way there's not much difference. She she worked hard for the poor, and that's exactly how um female saints would have been portrayed. But I don't think there would be any notion that she could do avenging miracles after life, Mother Teresa. That would be I think people would find that pretty shocking, wouldn't they? That she was mm. imagined to have come up out of her grave and slapped somebody for being uh, um irreverent around her grave. Uh, uh, so I think I think that's what's what's shifted probably isn't it the way that we we remember people after after they've died. So what would have been the motivation of a hagiographer to want to write these kinds of avenge like vengeance stories? Well, hagiographers are always they're they're writing on behalf of the institution that cares about the saint. So the institution would have said, "You write us a powerful patroness." Who's going to look after our interests? We want you to show her as somebody who will not only heal, but also if somebody steals from this monastery or whatever, um, they'll get punished. So it's it's it, it of course it's 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 out of veneration, out of the sense that the saints saints need to be cherished 
and kept on kept on side loved otherwise they they can um they can bring down power upon you for for not respecting them um but but hagiographers are also doing it because that's that's i suppose that's effectively how they make a living so that so that it's not quite doing a job because i think i think the, the hagiographer i'm interested in he actually genuinely cared about and was interested in the women that he wrote about um, but but they're always doing it for for an institution that's asked for it to be to be done. I think was there a patron female saint of Cambridge? No, except that I think Cambridge would have looked to Ely and Ethelreda mm. basically. So that uh, um, I think there's a story of of some uh, what's called the Thanes Guild, so a guild of guild that that went to Ely and swore their oaths at Ely. So I think Kate, that's and that's where the direction that Cambridge in, in, at this in the early Middle Ages would have looked um, for, for for patronage. But yes, mm. we don't have our own one. <laughs> <laughs> Although there's a monastery, uh, there was a monastery of Saint Radigan, which is where where Jesus College is now. But um, mm. I don't think she was the patron of whole of Cambridge. So did they? How were they viewed compared to other groups of women, such as like witches at the time? Was there wow. any kind of connection? I don't, I don't know so much about witches. I mean, I think witches, that's the kind of the wise woman who knows about herbs and healing in life. And I suspect that that's the kind of person that people knew that they needed to get their, get their, their potions, but they were a bit afraid of. Um, I think abbesses wielded some of the same powers but in a more licit and less maybe scary way but I mean witches are a more a feature of the later mid I don't know how much we know about witches in in the period that I'm talking about I'm sure there were wise women if you know what I mean who 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 knew how to to, to use herbs and you and they certainly have got charms and potion potion recipes from early England um yeah, that's an interesting, int and I don't know enough to give you a, a really good answer. <laughs> <laughs> um, so did these, how did these stories kind of go out of fashion? Because we don't still hear them now. So. We don't still hear them now. I think it's because uh, because of the, the Reformation. So all the things that happened under Henry VIII that sort of dismantled the medieval church and went round these monasteries chucking away their relics um taking it all apart because it, in a sense the cult of the saints it, it got a little bit out of control the monasteries uh, hoarded up money from pilgrims and there was quite a lot of abuse of of the cult of the saints basically for, for financial reasons so it was just taken apart very explicitly and put aside at the time of the reformation no we that's all extra stuff that's not biblical we you know we and it, you also saw people going around churches and defacing images of the saints uh scratch scratching them away so it was very it was very pointedly put aside as a practice i mean of course we it's been rehabilitated to some extent and we still remember the, the and there are places that are still so so in ely they've got i think i've got a, a finger bone of ethelreda that is the only thing that they've got left but it, it but it was very explicitly wiped out as a feature of the religious life of england um you know physically wiped out basically and what was the reason for wiping it out? 
but I think it was just thought to be, have become uh, uh, not not biblically based practice and um, too too focused around money and mm. driven by money. You know, uh, pilgrims paying paying off giving offerings at shrines to go and look at a load of bones that some people believed were just you know a bunch of pig's bones that 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 it was all that it was all too based on a sort of dishonesty really um mm. that's that's a slightly uh, um whitewashing account but it, that's basically what people stopped thinking that it was that it was um a valid practice and they felt that it was it was done uh, abusively and dishonestly. I think. Mm. And what do you think? Do you think it was done dishonestly? Or? Well, I, I I suspect that it did get out of control, and people got too too keen on on worldly power that attached to to controlling relics and lost sight. I mean, I think I think um, having a, a having a reverence for very holy people is it, it you know that's that's fine. It's what you think um, you can gain from controlling, as it were, controlling that. I've got, I've got some relics. Give me some money, and I'll let you touch them. That's not. That's that, that can't. That doesn't feel right, does it? Really. Mm. So that wasn't the original atten- intention of the stories, though, was it? That was something no. that came after. No, I, I think that was encourage people to to remember that particular saint uh, and and pray to them. I think, yeah. Hmm. thank you very much very interesting talking to me ella (laughs) um so make sure to follow the cambridge festival on facebook twitter instagram and youtube for more fascinating events and follow the say that again slowly podcast for more conversations with this year's experts on the theme of power in all its forms thank you for listening